0: Are you a detailed person, someone who loves details? I personally am not. Some of you laugh because you know. Uh, my wife, I think, is never never fails to be surprised when I notice a picture or a decoration on the wall that's been there for months, and I say, is that new to her? I think we know this as well when You know, you ask a guy and a girl how their date went. And the guy says, fine. And the girl takes you all the way back to the details of what she was thinking about wearing that she didn't wear for the date that night. Every detail. Just a word to the teenage boys. When your mom asks you, how was school? Fine is not the right answer. She wants details about your day. God works in details. Our God cares deeply about details. And if we're meant to live in God's world rightly by faith, we must see our God's work, our God's providence in the details of our lives. And his work in details is all over our text this morning in Genesis 29. We're going to go through the 30 30 verses, first 30 verses of this chapter. This is when Jacob arrives in Haran. He marries with a whole lot of detailed conflict in between. Here's the main point I want you to see as we work through this passage. Listen closely god's providence extends to the details of promises and pain his providence extends to the details of promises and pain live in dependence on him in light of it our god works all in all the details of his working out his promises and pains pain we are to live in the detail of uh, dependence In light of that. And we're going to see this through two points this morning. Two points if you take notes. Number one, see God's providence in promises kept. See God's providence in promises kept. And number two, trust God's providence in pain endured. Trust God's providence in pain endured. Let's begin by seeing God's providence in promises kept. That's the first 14 verses. Look at verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel's daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone, my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. We last left Jacob at Bethel. God had appeared to Jacob and promised him his presence there. And now Jacob comes to Haran, except the narrator doesn't call it Haran. In verse 1, he says it's the land of the people of the east. I think he does this because in Genesis, time someone moves eastward, it means Danger. God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden when they sent toward the east, away from his presence. Abraham, just a few chapters back, sent members of his own family who were not part of the chosen line away to the east. So at the beginning of this chapter, Jacob, the man that we know, has God's presence, comes to the land of the people of the east, his own family. Trouble Probably lies ahead. Now, as you read this, I hope it reminded you because it certainly would have reminded the first readers of the story of Abraham's servant who went to Haran to find a wife for Isaac. Once again, God's man comes to Haran and he finds a wife through an encounter at a well. The narrator takes some time to Set the scene for us beginning in verse 2. We have this well. There's three flocks of sheep. They're just lying there. They're waiting for water. They can't drink yet. Because the shepherds make clear that all the flocks must be there before they gather or move the, the stone from the well so that the sheep can get water. And it's only after the scene is set that Jacob then asked the shepherds where they're from. And it's only at this point that we learn Jacob has made it. He's in Haran. God providentially led Jacob to the exact place. Does Jacob even know it? He has to ask before he knows where he is. And then remarkably, verse 5, the shepherds, they know Laban. Remember, Laban is Rebekah's brother. Isaac sent Jacob to him to find a wife. The same man that Abraham's servant went to find a wife for Isaac. Both of them have this providential encounter at a well. And it just so happens, Jacob learns, they know Rachel. And she's coming to the well with the sheep. Now, it seems like Jacob wants these shepherds gone. Tells them to go water the sheep. Get, get them out to pasture. He's trying to assert himself. But the, these shepherds won't be told what to do. They, they say, verse 8, they can't. Until all the flocks are there and the stone is rolled from the well. Now, Rachel eventually arrives. What does Jacob do when he sees her? Verse 10. He rolls the stone away from the well's mouth and he waters the flock himself. Back in verse 2. We learned that the stone on the well's mouth was large and that the shepherds, plural, removed the stone from the well. Jacob does it himself. So don't mistake the fact that because Jacob didn't like to hunt, was more of a homebody, that he was weak. Jacob is clearly a strong man. And soon that strength is about to be used for years of hard labor. Here he kisses Rachel. It's a a familial kiss with joy. He makes clear how they're related. They're cousins. And just as Rebecca did earlier years ago, Rachel runs from the well to tell her father Laban whom she's met. Remember, it was Laban who went out to meet Abraham's servant. And it's Laban, verse 13, Rachel's father, who comes to meet Jacob. Everything seems great. They embrace. They kiss. Jacob stays with him for a month. Of course, trouble lies ahead. But we can see very clearly God's providence in keeping promises. Jacob has just seen the extraordinary. He has seen God's presence and promise in a dream. But here, God's providence and his presence are at work in the ordinary. Though it's never explicitly said. Jacob just happens to be in the right place when these shepherds are there. They happen to know Laban. And there, providentially, Rachel is coming to the well when Jacob happens to be there. Notice, look at verse 7. It was still high day. It wasn't time for her to come. So all of this are signs of God's presence and providence down to the smallest details. But does Jacob recognize it? I think there's so many similarities with this account, with the account of Abraham's servant. I think we're supposed to pick up on the differences. Abraham's servant recognized the providence of God. Like Jacob, he came to this land with Abraham's blessing and God's promised provision. But unlike Jacob, as he reached the land, the servant prayed for wisdom in discerning God's hand, knowing who who the wife of Isaac should be. Did you notice that Not once did Jacob pray to God. God is so clearly at work in the details. Jacob offers no prayer, no praise to God. And I think there's another clue that Jacob is a man who's not recognizing that God is keeping his promise to be with him. Do you remember uh, two weeks ago in the story of, of Bethel, how prominent a role that stone played In that story, Jacob had taken it as a pillow and then he anointed it to make it an altar, the first pillar in the house of God. Once again, here's a large stone and it features prominently in this story. Look at verse one. It's there twice in verse three. It's there in verse eight. It's there in verse 10. So much information about this stone The forward movement of the story depends on this large stone being moved. But unlike Jacob's encounter with God at Bethel, Jacob does nothing to offer praise or worship to God. He's not like Abraham's servant in Genesis 24, who the text says bowed his head and worshiped and blessed the Lord when God so clearly provided Rebecca, I think Jacob is oblivious to God's clear providence. He weeps with joy, but he's not praising. He's walking through this entire encounter with these people from the east, but he's not praying. He's not worshiping God for his providence and presence. Surely, There was more going on than is reported when Jacob and Laban met in verse 13. Jacob told Laban all these things. He proved to him, I'm your nephew. He must have told Laban about his deceit. And that's why he's there and not his older brother, And given what's coming, I think it's ironic that Laban says, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Laban knows Jacob is his nephew. I think he knows this is a deceiver just like me. In his providence, God has brought all of this about down to every detail But does Jacob see it? Do you see it? We are meant to actively look for God's providence in the world and in our lives. Jacob saw it clearly in the extraordinary. He missed it in the ordinary. What is God's providence? Pastor John Piper has just written a big book on this. And I think this is a great definition. God's providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. Purposeful sovereignty. And it goes all the way down to the flight of electrons, to the movements of galaxies. It goes to your heart. God's nature is wise and just and good. Now for us as Christians, if you're a Christian, if you're trusting Jesus, I don't think we can make total sense of God's purposeful sovereignty in our lives. I do think we are meant to see evidences of it. We're not meant to be oblivious. How many of you have heard this phrase Take time or stop and smell the roses. Uh, This is a phrase, if if you're not familiar with it, that means that don't live your life in such a way that you are failing to see goodness all around you. Beauty. As a Christian, you are meant to take time to see, to study, to observe, to delight in God's providence in your life. Have you done that? Jobs, marriage, provision, children, even hard things, trials. Don't fail to see God's purposeful sovereignty at work for you. When we moved here, we had the responsibility and the opportunity to build this building. And it cost over 5 million dirhams. And there would be nights I would lay awake and I would wonder how in the world is all of this going to come together? And as I would worry, I would try to turn worry into prayer. There'd be payments coming up that I knew that I was the legal person responsible for. I was desperate for the Lord to provide for this work. And I saw the Lord do it providentially again and again and again. And it bolstered my confidence in the Lord. I can look back and distinctly remember an email with a surprising gift or a meeting where someone committed more money than I could have imagined that they were able to. God meant for me to see all of that, to thank him for it, and then to use that as a well of confidence to serve him when new seasons of needed faith would come in my own life. God was faithful in every detail. Same is true for you in your life. Are you becoming or are you oblivious to these specific ways God cares for you? Don't wait for the extraordinary. See it. In the ordinary, as you study that, it will enable you to live with skilled wisdom before God. For so many of you, Ras al was a foreign place when you came here. How has the Lord cared for you in moving here? How has the Lord provided for you in your job or at your school? What about spiritually? Some of you have become Christians in this emirate. Have you considered all that the Lord did to raise up, bring those here who would share the gospel with you? And the Lord's not just provided for salvation. He's he's provided for our sanctification. The Lord has grown us in Christ in this desert. Are you studying this? Are you seeing, are you savoring these signs of God's purposeful sovereignty all around you? Or are you not able to stop and smell these roses? Failing to do this can cause us to be functional deist or atheist. We say we believe big truths, but we don't acknowledge, live, embrace them in the details of our lives. As we do this, it increases our delight and our joy in God. God's providence is not just meant to be seen. It's also meant to be acted upon. Jacob's awareness of this was meant to lead him to prayer and to praise. So very plainly, because God is purposely sovereign, pray. Through the Spirit, the risen Christ is with with us until the end of the world. There isn't Christ stands for us in, in heaven. Pray. Be faithful in light of this. Here's God providentially leading Jacob to the exact place he needs to be for God to fulfill his purposes in Jacob's life and his plans for the world. God was working in details. He has not stopped working in details. So who has God brought into your life? What? has God brought into your life that you're meant to see and act in light of? He hasn't overlooked one detail, even if you have. So I was thinking about you preparing for this sermon. One of the ways you, a number of you have encouraged me is you, you've told me specific stories or ways that the Lord has opened doors for you, maybe in ministry, uh, maybe in how he brought you to faith or, or how he's cared for you in, in different seasons of your life. That actually builds my confidence in the Lord as you tell that to me. And I think we can serve each other in this way. We should be asking each other, what's God doing in your life of late? And let's help each other bring God's purposeful sovereignty in our life to memory. We don't want to become Christians who confess that God is on the throne and then live like deists. As if we're unaware, or he's removed from our lives. When you think about growing in this, think about a, a, a baby child who who takes their first steps toward mom or dad. You know, they're holding out our arms to our to our children. Now, the same is true when when we or our children for the first time jump into the pool to their parents. That first step of learning to trust leads to bigger steps in learning to trust. I think this is what happens as we store up in our spiritual accounts, accounts of God's purposeful sovereignty in our lives. We begin to trust him more. We live with greater wisdom and, and skill. We, we know this wonderful dependence on God in prayer. And then when we come to the next trial, when we come to the next season, we have spiritual reservoirs to draw from, of ways God has been faithful to us. For his whole life, Jacob was meant to look backwards and see the detail to which God worked to bring his wife to him at that well, to bring him to that place in order to trust God in the future. Why ultimately does God's purposeful sovereignty extend to these details? For Jacob... It was to bring about the birth of his son. For us, it is for the exaltation of the son. All of that for our maximum good in Christ. God has always worked in the ordinariness of life to bring about extraordinary ends. Learn to see it. It's no accident you're in this emirate. It's no accident you're in that seat. No circumstance in your life is a coincidence. What risk, what obediences do you need to exercise? Jacob seems a bit oblivious to this at this point. He won't always be. God's purposeful sovereignty and presence in the details of your life are meant to be studied. Here we see God's clear providence. Next, we're meant to see God's providence does not mean the absence of pain. So number two, trust God's providence in pain endured. Trust God's providence in pain endured. Let's read verses 15 through 30. Then Laban said to Jacob, "'Because you are my kinsman, "'should you therefore serve me for nothing?' Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Silpat to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years. There's much more we'd like to know, but we're not told everything we want to know. If you'll remember, Abraham's servant showed up with costly gifts for Rebekah's family. We don't know why Jacob sent Isaac away to get a wife empty-handed, but we do know God is with Jacob, even in pain and persecution. Here, Jacob gets a taste of his own medicine. In Laban, Jacob has more than met his match. Laban repulses us, doesn't he? Instead of offering to serve Jacob as he comes for his daughter, Rachel, he He's looking for ways for Jacob to serve him. Laban sees all of his family relationships as commodities to be used to serve him. He, he's putting his own daughters up, for bidding. Did you notice we never want to hear their voices in this story? Laban's first question to Jacob, what should your wages be? Really nothing. This is not an economic relationship. It's a family relationship. But Jacob is alone, no family, nothing to offer except his strength. And he will give it. And while the older daughter is Leah, we're told it's Rachel who is beautiful. Her eyes being soft or weak was uh, a way of, of saying that her eyes were not beautiful in the way that the ancient Near East would have valued her eyes. He loves her so much, Rachel, he's willing to serve Laban seven years. Laban, verse 19, very ambiguously says, it's better that I give her to you than I give her to any other man. Jacob should have gotten Rachel's name put in writing. At that very point, he serves Laban to get her. In all those seven years, Leah still does not have a husband. And once the time is up, verse 22, Laban does what was typical. He throws a party. How sinister was this feast? He gives Leah instead of Rachel. He also gives the female servant Silpa, That becomes important later in Genesis. And it's the next morning in verse 25, Jacob wonders, what has Laban done? The deceiver has been deceived. He's reaped what he's sown. Now, if you're like me, you wonder how in the world did this happen? How did he not know? Uh, You're probably aware she would have been wearing a veil. It would have been dark, very dark. But remember, Laban threw a feast. He knew the ruse he was about to pull. So in addition to darkness and a veil, Jacob, I think encouraged by Laban, probably had too much to drink at that wedding feast. Even more the reason he wakes up the next morning, surprised to find he married Leah. The man who deceived his blind father is himself deceived by blindness created by the night and probably strong drink. Jacob has not prayed. He's not asked of God anything. He's deceived by Laban. How sinister does it sound when Jacob, Laban says to Jacob in verse 26, in our country, we do not give away the younger before the older. Jacob, you're not in your daddy's home anymore. And so Jacob waits out the wedding week. He must then serve another seven years. He meets all the requirements. Laban gives Jacob Rachel in verse 28. He receives Bilhah, verse 29. We learn in verse 30, Jacob marries Rachel. Jacob loved her more than Leah. Jacob served for another seven years years. Well, this is a mess. It's a mess. Another family in Genesis set up for terrible conflict. Let's see a few realities from this. Number one, most obviously God's providence extends to pain and persecution. Jacob was the man God promised to give his presence to. And now he's in a foreign land, and he's being treated like a slave. The word stone featured prominently in the first scene. The word serve features prominently here. Verse 15, verse 18, 20, 25, 27, 30. Jacob is forced into servitude, hard labor, by the man who would be his father-in-law. What happens to the man who's promised God's presence? He is put into circumstances that would have been hard, confusing, unfair, and I have no doubt caused him to say, where are you, Lord? Have you ever been there? Life didn't turn out. As you planned, given the great promises of God, you think life will go in a particular way. It seems to go in the totally opposite direction. For Jacob, it's pain, it's persecution. He's totally powerless. He's a slave. Laban is gonna use his strength for maximum benefit. After this great scene where God made his presence known in power to Jacob, his name is not mentioned once in these 30 verses. That does not mean he's not there. Even in this mess, God's providence is everywhere. Where is God? What is God doing? First, he is certainly shaping Jacob for future usefulness. Through all of this pain, Laban's sin, what would have been misery for Jacob, God is breaking Jacob down to be the man that he must be. God has bound himself to Jacob. So, in all of this, God is doing more in Jacob's life than Jacob can possibly realize. And let me say this he already has. Jacob doesn't scheme, he's not deceiving. He's doing the work. Laban's dishonorable, but Jacob's acting with honor. God's already shaping Jacob for the future. God deals in the same way with us. We find ourselves in hard or confusing, unfair circumstances. And we ask, where are you, Lord? What are you doing? And then when we look back, We see God was actually doing more to shape us than we could understand in that moment. So God's providence, his presence means he will not spare us from pain. But he assures us he will go with us and do more good in us than we can fathom. Each of you, in different ways, have walked through seasons of your life you would never want to walk through again pain with you i know for some persecution no doubt others have sinned against you and and if you're honest you've sinned against other people but if you're trusting christ you can be confident god was is doing more good than you can fathom One teacher said this so well for every Christian. It is cosmically impossible for God to be doing any better to you than he's doing right now. If you're in that kind of season this morning, trust God is not wasting one minute of your life. 17th century English pastor Samuel Ward said it this way, not the slightest trouble befalls you, Without the overruling eye and hand of God, he knows what you are made of and measured is out exactly every cross to us as a chemist measures grains of medicine. That changes what we, how we see. What's confusing to us is not to God. For Jacob's good, and as we're going to see, for the good of all of God's people in Christ, God sovereignly brings about this hard circumstance for Jacob. But it's not going to be until after the time Jacob sees it more fully. Same is true for you. What will we be able to see after the times in God's goodness? We can start to trust him now. You please your heavenly father when you trust him, when you have no earthly reason to do so, when your trust is based simply on what he said in his word. He knows our limitations. He knows our frames. He knows we don't know all that he does. He just asked us to trust him. What else is clear here? Second, through pain and persecution, God was using this for the good of his people to come. This is a miniature Exodus story. God goes with his man, in the future his people, into unfair and abusive servitude, And we'll work through it for great good. You think God's people in the future needed to learn this? That pain and persecution are not the sign of God's abandonment. It's always when God is doing some of his greatest work. What else? Jacob needs a wife. He's the man through whom God promises to bless the world. How can Jacob be on the receiving end of this kind of treatment? Little does Jacob know that with his God, what man means for evil, God means for good. Amazingly, the wife Jacob did not want, that he did not intend to marry, will be the wife who gives birth to Judah, from whom will come David, from whom will come the Christ. Our God is never thwarted by human sin. In those darkest circumstances, far from being absent, God is actively working to keep his promises. I want to say just a brief word about polygamy. It's reported in Scripture, but it's not commended. It clearly violates God's pattern in creation. And everywhere we see it in the Scriptures, there's terrible problems. There's jealousy, there's strife. You know, Jacob could have only married Leah, but his heart was for Rachel. He will know conflict in his family. We live now in a culture where this is accepted. But despite any outward appearances, never be deceived the heartbreaking nature of the lives and the families this affects. So in scripture, when this evil is reported, it's not commended. God is still working through it. Through twisted situations, God brings about his promises to save. God's goodness is seen in the fact that he is more committed to save than human beings are to sin. At the cross, we see man's greatest sin and even more God's great salvation worked out there. Here, Laban thinks he's in control, but even Laban is being used by God, for God's salvation plan. Friends, from Leah will come Jesus, who will come not to be served, but to serve to the point of death. Jacob could have not have never known how God was working in this web of wickedness he was caught up in. God was working for the salvation of the world Father using his daughters as bargaining chips. An uncle treating his nephew as a slave. If you know yourself, as Mark said so well earlier, we have Jacob and Laban in our hearts. We are deceitful. We're not innocent. But The Savior who comes from this line will be. Jesus Christ will put himself under the law, serving until his service leads him to the most shameful, cruel death in antiquity on the cross. And yet no deceit was found in his mouth. And this dying servant will be raised as the king. The suffering servant is the exalted king of the universe. This is the way God's economy works. Raised and he freely offers salvation for everyone who would ever turn from their sin. And trust in Christ. Is Christ your king? Or are you committed to serving your own self? You must come to him. You must bow your knee. You must turn from service of self. Trust Christ. Put your trust in Christ. Don't miss the fact that God has brought you here purposely to hear the good news of Jesus Christ from the story of Jacob and Laban this morning. Without minimizing any sin, here was God at work actively to do eternal good for later generations. And we're on the other side of that. We see more than Jacob did. For you as a Christian, what is it that you're not trusting God with in your life? Do you see how down in the details our God is? God does not miss details amazing in this chapter where we can clearly see his work everywhere to bring about all of these promises. His name is never mentioned. Brothers and sisters, this is our rest and our confidence. Even in the darkest days our God is doing thousands of more things than we realize. If he can work to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ through this mess, can't he work in your dark days? This story is meant to teach you To look for God's providence in ordinary details and to trust God's providence in pain. God sovereignly arranged this story for his people then and for us now. And now we leave this story and Jacob has two wives instead of one. He grew up in a dysfunctional family. He's going to have a dysfunctional family. Whether it's a dysfunctional family or a a marriage made in deceit or a man unfairly treated by his uncle in a foreign land, the God of Jacob will prove to be the God who can work a mighty salvation through it all. And so it will be when we look back on the the providence of God in our lives. What was hard for us, what was confusing, unfair to us with our good God, we will look back one day and think of them as but only a few days. May the Lord give us grace to trust Him, to live faithfully in these few days of our sojourn.